Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is episode two of the Shogun Soccer Sit-Down. I am Ahan, the number one Shogun, a.k.a. Pablo Baldini. I will headbutt you into the fourth row. Do not play with me. Thank you all for joining. Um, this is episode two, like I said before. Um, but I wanted to really get into a couple things. So I thought the first uh, episode was really cool. Thank you for everyone that's had a chance to listen and give feedback. Um, I extremely appreciate it. Uh, one thing I did pick up from a couple of the folks that have reached out thus far and listened to the podcast is um, uh, explaining what my soccer philosophy is, right? Um, because it's one thing to just talk about, hey, you guys are doing this wrong, but it's another thing for you to understand, like, how am I actually understanding or knowledgeable in what is the correct manner and how you should take in soccer watch soccer do all those things with soccer eight well as we know it world football because that's the right way you should say it football yes football total whatever it is or however you say it across the globe you know it as a beautiful game so for me i'm going to explain a lot in regards to what my philosophy is and um how that interprets to the best way of being able to view play understand the beautiful game right so what we're gonna do is we're gonna get into it um for me what's most important is to think about it like this right so most people uh or at least most americans would assume that in regards to how you play soccer or where you play positionally is based on where you are on the field more often than not, that's usually with most American sports um, in regards to what position you play in that respected sport. So most people would think that the further you are all uh, the further away that you are from your opponent's goal, the less offensive minded you will be as a player. Hence what you will be categorized. So if you're closer to the opponent's um, goal, then you would be an attacker or someone on the attack. If you're somewhere in the middle of the field, you would be considered a mid, uh, midfielder. And then if you are closer to your own goal, if you are a, that would either assume that you're a defender or in the last spot, you are a goalie. That is not true, right, in regards to how my philosophy goes, because at the end of the day, it works like this. No matter what happens, no matter where you are in the field, if your team has possession of the ball, you are an attacker. If your team is without possession of the ball, you are a defender. I don't care where you sit on the field. Um, why I think this way is because uh, as my coaching prowess grew, um, having a, a, a few years working alongside really good coaches from across the globe um, at Midwest Soccer Academy, shout out to Bud Lewis, uh, former head coach of the Wilmington Quakers Division III um, in, uh, NCAA Hall of Famer. Um, in a, uh, I think NCAA Hall of Famer, not only as a player, but also as a coach. Um, but his philosophies and principles were very similar. So, uh, the one cool thing, and the reason why I bring Bud Lewis up is because he got me 
into a situation to where I wanted to at least pursue more acumen and knowledge in the beautiful game, not only as a player, but as a coach and administrator. So what I thought was important was to try and get around as many people as humanly possible. Um, hence the Midwest soccer Academy. I got around so many different Dutch coaches and the philosophies and principles of many of them were very similar, how they broke it down in regards to certain tactics, um, to each their own, so to speak, but overarching principle that they all had is that when you are with possession, everybody attacks. And when the team is without possession, everybody is defending in any way, shape or form. So keeper gets possession your keeper gets possession of the ball let's say a stop is made now he becomes the first attacker he or she that person becomes the first attacker um now as the ball moves up the field your defenders are progressing the ball but they still have possession so that makes them an attacker as it progressing goes up the field uh on the opposite side of the field if my defenders start off with the ball and then the opposite or opposing team their first line of defense is going to be their attackers or their front line. So again, everybody attacks, everybody defends. Um, unfortunately, this concept or mindset is, is taken slow shape in the United States. So what I'm here to do is to help you all out. Now, the best way that I can execute this is to tell you about an individual who I think has the utmost importance in the game of football overall um not only when he was a player but also when he was a coach uh unfortunately he is passed on uh into the great beyond but uh we were lucky enough to receive him as a football demigod in many ways shapes and forms the name of this individual is johan cruyff um again for anyone that's listening if you are a dutch uh, national team fan, then you are quite familiar with this individual. But what we have to do is we have to break this individual down in two parts. Not only do we have to break him down as a player, but we also have to break him down as a coach manager, if you will, because not only are you just a coach of one team, you are trying to manage uh, a lot of things within the club, the organization. So Hence why I bring this up. We'll get into detail later. There's going to be three videos that I think fully encompass and help me explain who Johan Cruyff is. So what we are going to get into is we're going to get into those. But before we do, let's get a little vibe going. Let's get some chance in the pit. Hey, all right. So now with uh, a little bit of vibe being set here, what we're going to do is we're going to first start off with a video, uh, which is by Soccer Stories on Oh My Goal. If you are familiar with Oh My Goal or if you are around the sport, uh, then you will be able to see a lot of different clips about previous players or uh, players past and present. Um, not only that, but coaches, different uh, information about different teams during different eras. So you definitely need to go check out Oh My Goal. Shout out to them. Uh, this is not a paid ad unless they want to pay. But 
uh, we're not at that point yet. Really, at the end of the day, what this is all about is trying to help Americans and really people across the globe to become bigger fans of the beautiful game. Again, me being an American, most people don't really think that I have the ability or at least the wherewithal to be able to speak to this. But what we're going to do is we're going to try to change a lot of minds. So we are going to get into this first video, like I said, by Oh My Goal. And this is, was Johan Cruyff as good as people said he was? In a way, I'm probably immortal. This is one of the thousands of quotes attributed to the Dutch and Catalan legend, the unique Johan Cruyff. Genius, artist, orchestrator. If you've heard the tales but never watched Johan Cruyff play, you have to watch this. Hendrik Johannes Cruyff was born in April of 1947 in Amsterdam. Oh, give me a moment, y'all. I apologize, and this is for the folks on YouTube. So uh, if you are watching on YouTube, again, I do apologize. You're probably looking at me and just hearing a bunch of stuff happen in the background. So let me switch it up real quick. Make sure that I screen share the right way because I want to make sure that you all see visually as much as I see. Right. So I think that's important. Now, let's get back to the video. More specifically, five minutes away from Ajax's stadium, a place that would become his home, even more so when his mother took a cleaning job at Ajax to make ends meet after the sudden death of Johann's father. Young Cruyff would spend every free minute of his childhood running around Ajax's stadium. The importance of his birthplace and time is the context that would result in one of the most impressive and lauded football developments in history, one in which Johan would become Cruyff. We're talking about total football. And when you talk total football, you talk Rhinus Michaels. It's not just possible to tell the tale of Cruyff, the footballer, without Michaels, the coach. All right, so I want to take a moment because I think Rhinus Michaels is a, a very important person in regards to the future of how Johan Cruyff at least thinks not only as a player but also as a manager. Uh, simultaneously, we're going to hear a lot more in regards to the tactics and build up of Johan uh, as well as Rhinus Michaels. So um, I wanted to take a moment just to kind of uh, lay the foundation of importance of this individual and the impact that he had on Johan Cruyff um, as a player and also as we evolve on as a manager. This video is really just going to tell us a little bit more about who Johan Cruyff was as a player first and foremost. I think this needs to set the table because a lot of times most people think that, you know, individuals that coach uh, only uh, or teach uh, were not good in that profession. That is very not true in regards to the case of Johan Cruyff. So what I think is important is that we have to show his pedigree as to who he was as a player, and we're going to get into that in depth. So again, we'll continue. The Dutch have a saying, God created the world, but the Dutch created the Netherlands, as they claimed the land their nation is built upon from the sea. Michael's football philosophy drew from the Dutch economics of space. Although the size of the football field is fixed, the playing area can be altered to suit a team's needs. For Ajax, who signed Michaels as their manager in 1964, it was all about space. Moving the ball fast, interchanging positions, making runs to stretch openings. Defenders would attack, attackers would defend. In this organized freedom 
one player rose as the creative outlet, Johan Cruyff. Woo! Okay, so um, another stopping point, which I I apologize. I'll try not to do this a lot so that we can get through this. Um, again, I think that most people think that football or world soccer is very boring. A lot of times people have the attention span of field mice uh, when it comes to things. So we need to be wowed uh, in the age of instant gratification that we all live in um, with technology and the Internet then it's very difficult for us to really be able to break down certain things because we may lose interest. So what I'm going to try and do is break this down. Space is important in regards to when you have possession of the ball, you want to create as much space as as, as humanly possible, right? Uh, more often than not, soccer pitches or fields are 120 yards by um 65 to maybe 80 yards, depending on what field or pitch you're playing. So the level that you play at determines the width and size of the field that you are on. That's just the total instance. But what's more important in what they had mentioned or what this video had mentioned before is that defenders would attack, attackers would defend. Again, same philosophy that I'm working with here is that no matter what happens, if you do have possession of the ball, you are an attacker. If you don't have possession of the ball, you are a defender, no matter where you are on the field. Not only that, you also need to learn how to control space. What that means is that, again, if you have possession of the ball, you need to make the field as big as humanly possible while creating passing lanes and angles that you create mismatches in regards to numbers. When you don't have possession of the ball, what you need to do is you need to close down the amount of space given to your opponents. So if they're playing in their own half, great. My philosophy, or at least the way that it was taught to me by many Dutch coaches, is that as soon as the team breaks or the ball goes across half field, so now it's entering into your defensive half, right? You have two halves of the field. Their defensive half, your defensive half. So when they enter into your defensive half, that's where you start to apply pressure. That is where the only thing that you want them to do is either pass the ball laterally or go backwards, which is called negative. So another thing I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and at least give you terminology so that when you hear me say drop, negative, things like that, that means that is directional information that you should be able to take in. One thing as a fan is that when you watch a sport, you should be able to understand some terms, knowing formations. These are just little things that will help you become more attuned with the game and what's going on as it's happening. So we'll continue. He was spotted on a playground at the age of 10 and asked to join Ajax's youth setup. At the His age official of 10. debut came in 1964 by the hand of Michaels. It was a 3-1 defeat, and he scored the goal. And he debuted Ajax were threatened the age by relegation. Instead, they began a revolution. And Cruyff was the liberator. His technical skills and the velocity at which he executed them were never seen before. So, as we continue, we'll uh, let this ad go through, because I know you guys are watching this probably on YouTube, but we'll let it rock and roll. But I think what's important here is just the fact that we get to talk about Cruyff and his importance to the game because again a lot of what he was doing was uh dynamic and game changing and this was like in the late 60s mid to late 60s so excuse me excuse me 
Here we go. Execute every pass. His ball control was marvelous, and his dribbling was unstoppable, even inventing his trademark skill, the Cruyff turn. Ooh, my favorite. Cruyff had control of the ball in an attacking position, but was facing his own goal and being guarded tightly by a defender. So Cruyff feigned a pass before dragging the ball behind his standing leg, turning 180 degrees and accelerating away. The defender was done for. Boateng vibes all over him. Uh, he pulled this off, by the way, this Cruyff turn was done during uh, one of the World Cups, 1974, I believe. Um, and it was done against the Italian team, which at the time was lauded for their prowess in defensive play. So for him to be able to do this against like one of their world-class players uh, to make uh, during like a World Cup, which is a, Move that's never been done before, but immediately he just does it. I'm talking he sat this dude down. So if you do not understand what Jerome Boateng vibes is, go look up Jerome Boateng versus Messi in the Champions League. My man got punished, and we have not seen him since. He has gone missing. I'm pretty sure that Leo Messi should be arrested for manslaughter based on what he did. We continue. On top of this, Cruyff could score every kind of goal, be it long-range, first-touch, powerful or placed shots, or dribbling goalies. Testament to this are his over 400 career goals. But the Dutchman's main qualities as a footballer were both his creativity and his intelligence. Cruyff's game was as much the result of his innate talent for playing football as his constant search to understand the game in an almost scientific manner, always aiming for efficiency. That's why total football was his natural habitat, and the style of play was enabled by the existence of Cruyff. The basis of it is that the shape is maintained by pure fluidity. If a player goes out of their position, another player fills that gap to keep the shape while drawing rivals out of position with your offensive runs. Cruyff, originally a forward, dropped out of position to drag out opponents and to get the ball directly from the goalkeeper. He served as the conductor. Ajax defender Barry Holchoff explained it best. We discussed space the whole time. Cruyff always talked about where people should run, where they should stand, where they should not be moving. It was all about making space and coming into space. Where is the most space? Where is the player who has the most time? That is where we have to play the ball. Every player had to understand the whole geometry of the whole pitch and the system as a whole. Okay, so... Another important point, which he, Barry Holshoff, uh, I apologize if I am completely um, just killing uh, the, the pronunciation of your last name, sir. But ex-Ajax defender Johan Cruyff comes through the Ajax system, at, uh, originally joins up at the age of 10, makes his debut with the professional team at the age of 16. At this point in time, we've already understood that he scored over 400 goals. Um, I do not know, at least off the top of my head, if this is strictly with the Dutch uh, side Ajax, um, which is, like I said, who he came through the academy. And he not only served as a player for Ajax, but also as a coach. So space is important. Being able to understand space. You don't make a pass and then look at it because it's a good-looking pass. What happens is that now space is adjusted. So... There's the ball itself that moves. Same thing with basketball. 
you have to create space. What does that mean? There's only so many players on the field. There's only so much space that's given to you on the court. How do you exploit the space? You continue to move within the space that you are given. So what they do is they do total football. Again, this Dutch national team side was known as clockwork orange for a reason. People would rotate from the back to the front because other folks were coming back in. Side note, this is a very important way if you are a player, if you do play, or if you would like to play, or if you have a child that plays. This is something that you can notate to them or at least give them a piece of advice. When you are an attacker, you make a run, you go forward. Now, let's say your team either loses possession of the ball, you work your way back, and then you retain or get possession back. Maybe you have a player that now positionally on the field is behind you, and they make a forward run. So what you do is you cover the space. What this allows for them to do is now that space and gap is filled, so it can't get exploited by the opposing team, but it also allows for you to actually catch a breather, right? Because now the person or player that was playing behind you has progressed forward or higher on the field than you have, and what happens is that that allows for you to catch a breather. You're still progressing forward because you want to keep the shape and the shape moves in regards to what the formation is. So now as the ball moves up field, you're getting your rest, but you are further behind the actual play. And now you still maintain shape. Ajax and later on the Dutch national team became an art form of football with Cruyff at their heart. The result? With the national team, he scored 33 goals in 48 matches, and the Oranje never lost a match in which Cruyff scored. The Netherlands paraded into the 1974 World Cup final, losing to the hosts of the tournament, Germany. Yeah, Cruyff Rob. was picked as the MVP of the tournament. Despite lifting no trophies, the clockwork orange wowed the world of football in the 70s, laying the groundwork for the future of the game, possession football, and tiki-taka. Oh, I love those With Ajax. Are you a I podcaster? love those jackets. Ah, oh, those are my jam. Those are my jacket. I love the jackets of the Dutch national team from the 74 kit. It was my shit. My apologies. And we continue. So give me a moment. We're going to rock and roll. Get there where we get there. There was silverware aplenty. Six Dutch league titles in eight years. Four Dutch cups and three European cups in a row. Okay, so let's count that. So... We'll go back just a bit. Uh, so we've got six uh, league titles, right? Titles got, in eight years. Four Dutch. We've got four Dutch cups. So we're at 10 total titles, right? Thus far, or at least pieces of silverware. Then after those 10, cups we have. And three European cups in a row. Three European cups in a row, dog. Let me tell you that this dude was the greatest player of his era. And he was also coaching other players to be where he wanted them to be. From 1970 to 1973. 1970 to 1973. Come on, dog. So you're telling me in the span, the span. Now, you couldn't have won six league titles because that wouldn't make any sense but the fact is is that 
During the time frame from 1970 to 1973, they won three consecutive European championships, meaning they were the best team out of all the best teams in all of Europe. And they won that consecutively. With the cherry on top being the European Super Cup and the Intercontinental Cup in 1972. Oh, and they won those Ajax two. became the best team in Holland, Europe, then the world. So Johan Cruyff received trophies. all the individual awards, including three Ballon d'Ors. From three. the moment right, Cruyff... So, hold on. Y'all have to understand this, right? Johan Cruyff, let's put this into perspective because most people kind of know some of the stars of today. We have Leo Messi, who arguably greatest player of all time. In my opinion, hands down, the absolute greatest player to ever have existed in, in totality of this sport. Now, his counterpart, Cristiano Ronaldo, who I think is 1B in regards to greatest players of all time. I, it is so hard for me to say that. Because I'm talking about, like, I understand the complete and total history of this sport. I know that there are so many great players. It's very, like, Johan Cruyff would fall down the pecking order in many cases across many different individuals if you were to just canvas who is the greatest player or one of your top five. Johan Cruyff, to many, would not even be in the top five in regards to greatest players of all time. I will argue that all the time. Fight me if you want to. And I do this without knowing what his legacy was as a manager and the impact that he had on football as a whole to today. Realized what he was capable of, he became more than a player. His long hair was unusual for the time. Cruyff was a professional footballer who saw his widowed mother not making enough to support his family. Cruyff saw the differences and inequalities in football and sought to repair them, even threatening to drop out of the Dutch squad ahead of the 1971 World Cup on a squad bonus dispute. So where does the best player in the world, an artist of the game who would speak with his feet and his mouth, go after winning everything at home? Where does the player who's more than a player go to? To the place where he was needed the most. In 1971, his teacher, Rhinus Michaels. You guys remember this dude? We were just talking about him earlier. Guess what? He's back. Moved to Barcelona. Michaels realized that Barcelona players did not lack technical ability, but were easily weakened by criticism. They lacked the winning mentality to become a football force. Michaels wanted Cruyff, and Cruyff had fallen out with the Ajax board, but there was still a problem. The Amsterdam team wanted to sell him to Real Madrid, a problem easily fixed with another quote from Cruyff. I will never play for a team that represents Franco. This was a decisive statement, one that sealed the Barcelona deal and showed Catalans what this guy was all about. All right, so... Brief history lesson. Um, at the point in time in which you have Catalonia, which is represented by Barcelona, which is it, it now, even to this day, they want to be recognized as their own independent nation, um, which still sits inside of Spain. Um, simultaneously, you have a lot of players that have represented Spain, 
but have also represented Barcelona, and they believe in the independence of Catalonia uh, from Spain. I digress. Um, the point being, or the point that was made by Cruyff is that he didn't want to play under any team that was backed by, at the time, uh, Franco, who was a dictator in Spain, and um, that Real Madrid was utilized or propped up as his um, greatness. So Real Madrid, I think at the time, had just come off uh, many European uh excuse me um but previously or prior to we're we're talking about Frank Puchkas uh uh Alfredo Di Stefano um and players like that and Real Madrid I think had won five consecutive uh European championships in a row it was just egregious how good this team was um not only that they were led by the two greatest players uh in Frank Puchkas and Alfredo Di Stefano who uh, which, by the way, we'll have a lot of ties and we'll break down this Real Madrid and Barcelona rivalry. Um, uh, Alfredo Di Stefano at the time was originally bought or agreed to terms with Barcelona. He also agreed to terms with Real Madrid. Di Stefano, before Cristiano Ronaldo, went down in the history of Real Madrid as the greatest goal scorer that had ever worn the all-white. So... Caveat to the reason why there's a bit of issue here. And like we just mentioned, Johan Cruyff was not a fan of a dictator at any way, shape, or form. I think some of these things had many uh, to do with the fact that he did not appear in the 1978 World Cup due to the fact that his family uh, was held hostage. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was the best player on the planet at that point in time. And Holland could have won the World Cup, and they are the greatest team to never win the World Cup. Uh, they actually went to the World Cup final in South Africa against, of all nations, who? Spain. The impact we will talk about was had by one Johan Cruyff. We continue. When you get older, you see a lot of things more in football. I mean, just football. And I think the best time by routine, by everything else, is about 26, 27. So you reckon you're now about at your peak? I hope so, yeah. Cruyff changed FC Barcelona, scoring 16 goals in 26 matches, winning 5-0 at the Santiago Bernabeu, and clinching the league title for the Kules for the first time in 14 years. Yes, 14. Cruyff accepted his role as a Catalan and pro-independence symbol, a visible face in the direct opposition to the powers that be. As a player, he won a further Copa del Rey with Barcelona and decided to retire in 1978. But, like... Oh. This is where we really get into the meat and potatoes. Um, we'll get through this real quick uh, as we skip through this ad. Let's mute that real quick because we're not going to do all that. Um, but we're going to get really in-depth in regards to Cruyff and who he is more so as a player first, then we'll get into the manager. Rates of the game, retiring wasn't something he was good at. Cruyff made a comeback in the USA, playing for the old NASL after a series of poor investments almost drove him bankrupt. So, to all Americans, there actually was soccer in the United States prior to the MLS. It just was never really told to you. 
you had some of the greatest players of all time. Johan Cruyff, Franz Beckenbauer, Pele, who played in this country. Yet, many don't know. So, that's why I'm here. Though he wasn't a fan of the artificial pitches, his time there and a brief spell at Spain's Levante made him realize he wasn't done with football yet, and there was only one place he could go back to. Ajax. His impact was instantaneous, and once more, club and player were ruling over the Netherlands. His final chapter, however, was with their bitter rivals. After winning the Dutch Cup, the Ajax board thought Cruyff wasn't worthy of a new contract. This angered Johan so much, he went across the street, knocking on the door of Feyenoord. Playing with a very young Ruud Hulet by his side, Cruyff played every match but one, was the star of the team, and won the domestic double, ending his career as the best player in the country. When we talk about Cruyff's legacy, we have to make an impossible separation between the footballer and the manager. Here, in old school, we talk about footballers. But Cruyff's influence on the game is still present today. His ideals on the pitch led to some of the best teams, nurtured the best footballers, who in turn became some of the greatest coaches in history. Tiki Taka, Total Football, the Ajax School, Barcelona's Masia, Pep Guardiola, everyone and everything under the wing of Johan Cruyff, the immortal god of football. But we have to focus on the baller. Cruyff was an artist on the pitch. What others do with a guitar or a paintbrush in their hands, he would do with a ball at his feet. He was arguably the smartest footballer in history. If not the best footballer ever, he was the most unique. And Cruyff's influence on the game is unrivaled. So, that is Johan Cruyff, the player, right? So hopefully that kind of breaks down a little bit in regards to who Johan Cruyff was as a player, and it sets the stage for Johan Cruyff as the manager. So without further ado, we'll get right into the next one, which is a video by TIFO Football. Uh, I love TIFO Football. Um, here it shows that I'm not subscribed, but I'm actually subscribed under my own channel. Uh, we'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button just because for the CDB, just for sake of all intents and purposes, we're here to do good things. So we want to highlight and let people know where to find all the information. Hey, it's not my job to keep it from you. I'm just here to share. So if you're listening, thank you for listening, and I appreciate you being here. You know what I'm saying? Let's get a drop in this B. You know what I'm saying? Um, which one shall we do? Oh, yes! Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. You know what? I think we scored. Let's go, 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 go. I don't want to do that to y'all. Y'all ain't ready for that just yet. Uh, I enjoy it. And that was part of the reason why I also liked watching football, uh, especially in other languages. But without further ado, let's get Total Football Explained because then we get into Johan Cruyff, the manager. It's probably fair to say that no style of football has had as much influence on the modern game as total football. 
The style is most associated with the Ajax and Dutch national teams of the 1970s, and in fact it got its name from the 1974 Netherlands World Cup side. But it had its roots in the Austrian national side of Matthias Sindelar in the 1930s and Ferenc Puskas and Co's Hungarians in the 1950s, and the lineage of Ajax's way originated with two English coaches. Jack Reynolds, who managed the club in three spells between 1915 and 1947, and Vic Buckingham, who managed them twice between 1959 and 1965. Then came the pairing who really created the style. Rhinus Michaels, who had played under Reynolds and replaced Buckingham in the dugout, and Johan Cruyff, perhaps the most significant figure in European football ever. It was then continued by Stefan Kovacs, under whom Ajax became the greatest club side in the world for a time. Total football has perhaps two key concepts, the utilisation of space and the fluidity of positions. Both were aided by Michael's fanatical work rate and discipline, with fitness a significant focus alongside skill work with the ball. Space is key, make the pitch big when you're attacking and small when you're defending. In order to make this work, Ajax also pressed. At times, they pressed almost manically. There was less an emphasis on pressing into passing lanes than an effort, often led by the wonderfully tenacious Johan Neeskens, to swamp the opposition player in possession. In order to facilitate this, Ajax also played a very high defensive line, compressing space yet further. The formation most associated with total football is the 4-3-3, becoming a 3-4-3 as the libero steps up into midfield a feature that persisted in Dutch football with players like Barry Hulshoff, Hurst Blackenberg and Danny Blind and started largely at Ajax by the Serbian Velibor Vizovic. Okay, so uh, let me let me take a moment because I know you probably heard a term that you're, you may or may not be familiar with, but the libero is the deepest lying player on the field that is not the goalie. So they are holding space or they are retaining space to where, number one, their last line of defense, they're sitting behind the, which is technically what you would consider a three back system or three defenders behind now the libero, which is technically considered or what we know it as the sweeper or the person that just sweeps up all the stuff uh, just as a last ditch effort. But you want to have someone that if you do win possession of the ball, you have to be good at getting out of pressure. Uh, so that means that you have to be technically gifted on the ball. So I wanted to take a moment just to at least clarify that really quickly. Let's continue. This allowed the defense to begin attacking moves, but also ensured that there were spare markers for the opposition center forwards and that Ajax could match a four-man midfield. As Jonathan Wilson notes, while other sides had engaged in horizontal positional switches such as wingers dropping inside or mild vertical ones like Nendo Hidaguti, Ajax and the Dutch national side were the first to engage in wholesale positional switches up and down each flank. In this way, the 4-3-3 or the 3-4-3 saw players on either flank push up and drop off, fluidly interchanging to create baffling attacking patterns. The team's spine in the most successful period of the early 1970s was Blackenberg, Neeskens and Cruyff, with Heinz Stoy in goal. The wide players, Wim Scherbier, Ari Hahn, who later became an accomplished sweeper, and Johnny Rep on the right, and Ruud Kroll, Gary Murren and Piet Keitzer on the left, all swapped with each other knowing that this spine would hold and cover, but Cruyff also dropped off and moved wide at will. 
pressing meant that, as long as players were pushed up and everyone could defend as well as attack, the fluidity of the team did not compromise its defensive shape. Of course, the attacking system could be negated, as Bertie Vogts and West Germany showed in 1974 by aggressive man-marking and flooding the midfield, but when Ajax were on song, it was nigh on impossible to stop them. The influences of total football show up in the coaching of Marcelo Bielsa and via Michaels and Cruyff's spells at Barcelona in the positional play of Pep Guardiola. Guardiola's positional play, which relies on vertical overloads, is only possible if players can change positions. And both Bielsa and Guardiola encourage their teams to control space, interchange, press and have encouraged players to play in roles that they aren't used to, where their skills as midfielders allow them to be attack-minded defenders, for example. The legacy of total football is not just in the beauty of Ajax and the Netherlands in the 70s, it lives on in some of the best football of today. Ah. People often ask us where we get our stats for these videos. Really uh, a great place to start is the OneFootball app. The app offers a fairly comprehensive statistical coverage of teams and players in-game and post-match. So there's a link in the description of this video if you'd like to download it. Thanks for watching. Hey, all right. So uh, that gives us a, a much better understanding of total football. And then the last video that we have here for today so we can get up out of here in regards to Johan Cruyff we're looking at Johan Cruyff's tactics explained and it's talking specifically about the tactics that he incorporated while managing the dream team um, which was the Barcelona side of 92 which won the European Cup so uh, there were a lot of very important players uh, that played on this team, one of which who now is a manager and regarded as the greatest coach uh, in the history of football. A lot of this has to do with the fact in extreme impact that was had on him by one Johan Cruyff. Uh, Cruyff had actually brought him up from the second team into the first team, uh, and he came through the academy. So that coach being one Pep Guardiola of Man City. Man City has won, I think, two out of the last three uh, English Premier League titles. Um, and they have set the all-time points record, meaning, which we learned last week, is points. Points earned for games won. And I think they broke the 100 points barrier um, when they won the title, I believe it was the second time. Uh, I almost want to say that they've won the uh, English Premier League title three out of the last four, but I know for sure that they've won it two out of the last three. So let's get into this final video of Johan Cruyff. Um, let me make sure that we have all things synced, and I apologize for dropping out for just a second. So let's get into this final video. And welcome back to Football Made Simple. When Johan Cruyff took over Barcelona, they were in a dark place with mounting debt and were just coming out of a crisis. The Hesperia mutiny had just taken place and members of the board were at odds with each other and their attendance numbers were dwindling. The club needed someone to bring them together and that man was Johan Cruyff who brought success and filled up the new camp once again. But how did Cruyff help to transform Barcelona? Well, let's take a look. We'll start with the tactics, using Cruyff's dream team as a rough blueprint. 
Of course, Cruyff was miles ahead of his peers tactically. And as his midfield charge Eusebio said, he came in and got a blackboard and drew three defenders, four midfielders, two out and out wingers and a centre forward. We looked at each other and said, what the hell is this? This was the era of the 4-4-2 or the 3-5-2. We couldn't believe how many attackers were in the team and how few defenders. He single-handedly introduced a new way of playing football in Spain. This is Out Systems. Oh, here we go. Jesus, can't even get through the ads. Damn it. All right, anyways, um, give me a moment. He did a 4-3-3 for the majority of his career, but he adapted this because he wanted a diamond in the midfield due to the angles it created. The more conventional option would of course have been a 4-1-2-1-2, which still provided the diamond, but Cruyff believed it sacrificed too much width. And he believed getting the wide central midfielders to move into these wide regions would lead to the collapse of the diamond in the central regions. In a time where most teams set up in the 4-4-2, he believed having a back four against the two forwards was a waste and they would be overloaded in the centre with his six against the opposition's eight. So, by moving a defender into the midfield region, you now had a seven versus eight, allowing a closer battle higher up the pitch. All this while still having width and keeping the wingers wide. However, even the back three was not a flat traditional back three, with Koeman often sitting deeper as a libero, meaning that the team actually now had two natural diamonds. The defenders alongside him had to have the mobility to help cover the width of the pitch, and in fact, Ferrer and Sergi Bahuan were naturally fullbacks rather than wide centre-backs. When building up, of course the priority was on maintaining possession, and the keeper often looked to roll it out to Koeman. Koeman was outstanding on the ball, and capable of finding angles when passing short to his teammates who looked to make the pitch big, or hitting long accurate balls into the wingers, as Cruyff was not afraid to go more direct. And as usual, having three centre-backs outnumbered the front two, allowing them to play out, and if one of the forwards pressed Koeman, the wide centre-backs were capable of progressing the ball themselves into midfield, whilst a defensive midfielder, often Guardiola, could drop into the backline in order to cover, in the way of total football. But when Koeman was free, he was an excellent dribbler and often looked to carry the ball higher himself, again with Pep covering. A quick side note, on the occasions where Cruyff lined up in a more traditional 4-3-3, he was an early proponent of the inverted fullback system, repopularized by Pep, with both Sergi and Ferrer happy to move into the midfield alongside Guardiola. But generally, Guardiola was the engine room of the side, being the hub around which the rest of the team looked to function. His role in terms of vertical movement was more limited, often moving horizontally to look to pick up and spread the ball. Ahead of him, the wide central midfielders allowed great movement within the team, as they had great fluidity and were important in manipulating the opposition from the half spaces. Eusebio had the most dynamic role in many ways, as he would often look to make runs high up the pitch to provide the game-breaking movement behind the forwards at the right time. But in the moments when Guardiola needed more assistance, he was the one more likely to drop in alongside him to help relieve the pressure. Okay, so... 
for anybody that is listening just to audio, um, what we're actually seeing on screen, which uh, again, you can find this on YouTube. So if you do like what you're listening to, but maybe you want a little bit more breakdown, uh, the video will actually be up on YouTube on the CDB uh, Podcast Network um, YouTube channel, just so this way you can see where the movement is happening. So what's what's going on is that, and this conversation happens often when I'm talking to parents or players if I'm coaching, um, is that you have to move to spaces where you can receive the ball, right? Because if you're on the field and collectively that your team has possession of the ball, you have to become a target to relieve or open up pressure or space. So if the ball is on one side of the field, obviously – um, or maybe not obviously, but something that you want to do is you want to try and open up the space so you can lift the valve on the pressure, so to speak. So if you are able to switch the field of play, which means that you can go from one side of the field, doesn't have to be an aerial ball that gets passed directly from one side to the other. It can be just the ball moving along the ground at enough pace to where you're able to exploit the spaces or the places in which your opposition or your opposing team is not at. So now they have to readjust and they have to move accordingly. But when you have players that back in or move into those spaces, so let's say you have a player on the opposing team that cuts off a passing angle between myself and my teammate, then what I would hope if I have possession of the ball if I can't pass it to the space to where my teammate is, I'm looking for my teammate to make a run so that I can put the ball into a space where that pressure is alleviated. So we'll continue. His own passing ability, however, is not to be underestimated either. Laudrup was often the wide left central midfielder, and he was one of the best playmakers in the world during his time. And he was capable of both spreading the play as well as threading a through pass for one of the forwards to finish. The midfielder at the tip of the diamond was key as well, as he was more of a second striker, pushing up when necessary, but capable of playing as a midfielder for the overload. But often, as the centre forward had freedom of movement, when he dropped, they could either overload the opposition, creating a 5 versus 4, or they would have opposing movements to hopefully temporarily create space behind or in front of the opposition's back line. Okay, so... Again, we did a pretty good job not stopping here, um, but I think there are parts uh, and points to really take hold of, uh, which are very important. So if you notice, for those that are watching on YouTube, you are seeing that there is a rotational movement between the midfield line and the striker, at least at this point in time. Um, but you also see that players are moving into spaces to support the passing lanes to where they can receive the ball without either a defender closing off that space between the pass uh, of the person with the ball and the person that they want to receive the ball, um, or you're seeing that now if I'm without possession of the ball, I move into a space so that I either take a defender with me. Uh, number one, I should take a defender with me, but number two, if I move out of a space as the player without possession of the ball, then I allow or open up a area or an amount of space for a player who also doesn't have possession of the ball to move into. So now what that does is that you 
probably are switching into positional play. And what that's doing for defensive setup is that the defenders now have to figure out or communicate what they're going to do. They have to figure out if I am uh, an outside attacker and then I'm going to move back into the midfield and allow for the midfielder whose place I'm going to take up uh, to move into my space, then those two defenders or the defenders that are defending me and my teammate, they have to figure out, are we going to stay in play in zone or are we going to man mark? More often than not, especially when this was first introduced, it created such a weird dynamic that defenders had no idea in regards to what they were supposed to do because they were tactically set up to play in a certain format. Now, if they step out of position, what that's going to do is it's going to create a space for your team or the team in possession of the ball to exploit. Whilst the wingers typically stayed wide during the build-up in order to stretch out the opposition and create more space for those in the centre, when the ball moved higher up the pitch, they came alive. Both wingers, which could be any of Laudrup, Stoichkov, Romario or Cheeky Begeristein, could make movements from out to in to give them great numbers in the centre. The front players functioned as a unit, wide central midfielders clogging the half spaces so opponents would tuck in to then isolate the wingers one versus one against the fullbacks. But if the wingers made central runs early, the wide central midfielders themselves could push to make up the width, or even the centre forward could look to move out wide to the flanks. When Juan Carlos, a traditional left back or left winger played here, he was particularly keen to do this. The attacking midfielder or false nine could drop deep to provide the wall pass to the advancing midfielders so that they would receive the ball in a dangerous position whilst facing forwards and have better options to open up the defence. When transitioning to defence, having so many players high up the pitch allowed them to transition quickly to a press. If they lost the ball centrally, they could cut off one side of the pitch and then transition to a lateral press to make the pitch small and look to win the ball. My favorite move. I love it. All right. So as soon as you lose possession of the ball, immediately what should happen, at least in my mind, is that the first defender or the person that probably lost possession, who's closest to the ball, needs to be uh the first person who was in attack, lose possession, now becomes the first defender. Sorry. Um, so what that means is that you are closest to the ball. What happens is that you have to try and create or push the space to where you can exploit or close the most amount of space down. More often than not, if you lose possession of the ball in the middle of the field, what you have to do collectively as a team is you have to dictate which side of the field you want to cut off. You have to push them towards the outside of the field because now what you are doing tactically is that you have to utilize at the out-of-bounds line as another defender. So as I push you to a certain point, I either want to push you inside towards more pressure or more support for me defensively, or I want to push you along the flanks. More often than not, when you're playing in two halves, you want to, at least the theory is that you want to play in an hourglass shape. Push towards the middle because if you're on the opposing half of the field, you want to push towards the middle of the field because that's where you're probably going to have the most amount of help. And in the midfield, you're going to have maybe an overload or a higher load of numbers or players to help you defend. If you, for some reason, 
get beat and they play along the outside. What you then do is you try to push them towards out of bounds because you can utilize that as your second defender until you receive help or support. So we continue. If they lost it wide, the wingers could immediately initiate the press. Another advantage of using true wingers rather than just central midfielders who had to then shift wide. But when they didn't have the ball for prolonged periods, they could be vulnerable due to only having three men back, so they would often try and shift to a more solid deep shape, such as a back four when necessary, particularly when Juan Carlos was in midfield and could drop to left back. Cruyff was not just about drawing pointless pretty patterns on the pitch. In his own words, results without quality are boring, but quality without results is pointless. And I love it. So uh, there's a, a couple of really good quotes by Cruyff, and we'll get to it. Um, but in the meantime, we are going to finish this up. So let's go. Perfectly. Before Cruyff came in, Barcelona had won three La Liga titles in 30 years. Cruyff's Barcelona were able to win four La Ligas on the trot. Add to that a Copa del Rey, three Copa de Españas, their first European Cup, a UEFA Cup Winners' Cup, and the UEFA Super Cup, and the portrait of quality and results is complete. Okay, so uh, in 30 years, they hadn't even won three trophies, which they won one for those that do not know and cannot see. So Barcelona before Johan Cruyff, had won one League Cup in the 1959-1960 season, and then they won again in 1973-1974 season, and then they won again down the road in 1984-1985 season. So that lets you know 3-30. and 30. That is a long expansion of time for a professional team to have won any silverware whatsoever, especially when you have the amount of opportunities to win silverware that you do within world soccer, especially European-based soccer or um, uh, South America. Anything that's not American, that's not just, hey, you have won world championship, right? Um, which is kind of weird how you can be a world champion and only play in, in one country, but Hey, I digress. Um, but Johan Cruyff comes in and then in eight years time, he wins four league titles, 1990, 1991 season, 1991, 1992 season, 1992, 1993 season. So four on the trot, meaning he won back to back to back. To back, I had to count that out. I felt like I was missing one. Um, titles, league titles. Not only that, wins the Copa del Rey in 1989-1990. Uh, looks like Spanish Super Cup. I'm not really sure. So there's three other ones that he wins, 91, 92, 94. And then there's the European Cup that he wins in 91-92, which is the dream team that won that. Uh, UEFA Super Cup in 92 and i cannot remember or make out this last trophy but he won that in 88 89 so good on johan cruyff and if you look at it uh it looks like he came in at uh 1988 um and then his time concluded in 94 so got a string of trophies here and there in the early stages and then just went straight bananas 
from 1990 to 1994. So good on Johan Cruyff, greatest manager, in my opinion, of all time, not Pep Guardiola. But another area where he had a lot of influence on the future of the club was La Masia. Before Cruyff came in, La Masia had been somewhat of an afterthought, operational and still producing first team players, but not of the highest quality. Okay, so if you're not familiar with La Masia, La Masia is Barcelona, uh, Barcelona's famed academy. So in La Masia, La Masia is not just about like soccer, right? Because most people, Americans specifically, only think that like, oh, well, there's a soccer academy. So that's all they do. No, La Masia was producing all the youth players of all sports. So we're talking basketball. We're talking handball. We're talking anything that could be considered. Ricky Rubio, the Gasol brothers, all of them came out of La Masia Academy. Even during the time of Leo Messi, you also have during soccer, you've got uh, every single player that you can think of from Andres Iniesta, Xavi, uh, Pep Guardiola, Leo Messi. Um, man, the list goes on and on and on if we're talking about even Johan Cruyff's son, Jordi Cruyff, came out of the academy. That should let you know how much of an impact he had. And again, what he had mentioned is that La Masia's academy is built, or at least it was looked at as an afterthought. Now, this is your academy. Your academy should be producing players that should be able to play at a high level in the professional uh, acumen, so to speak. So when you're not really doing much, then you don't have as much, you know, a feeder system. Now what you have to do is you have to go out and you have to buy players, right? And if we look at the scope of the way that sports is now, if you're a free agent or a player that you can just buy because world soccer works completely different from any other sport with a salary cap whatsoever, you can just go buy a player if you have enough money to go buy them. doesn't matter if they're under contract or not. So... When you can produce players of high quality, then that means that you are making money hand over fist because they are coming through your academy. If that makes sense, we continue. In fact, like many sides of the time, they were still overly fixated on producing tall players who could allegedly handle the professional game better. In fact, Pep Guardiola had to fight for his place, as some coaches were unsure whether he would reach the arbitrary height of 1.8 meters. Johan Cruyff showed them that height and physicality were not the most important elements, but rather on the ball ability. As Cruyff said, I had short players like Albert Ferrer, Sergi or Guillermo Amor, players without great physiques but who pampered the ball with their touch and pressed the opposition like rats. Even Pep wasn't all that physically, but with the ball he was intelligent. That's what I wanted. It wasn't just the focus on on-the-ball ability that he brought to the club. Having come through the academy, he had first-hand experience of how a talent factory should operate, with players from a young age being taught to play the same way throughout the age groups, so that they can seamlessly transition into the first team. That style of play ended up being a 4-3-3 with a focus on the three Ps, possession, pressing, and positioning. He also championed small-sided matches and games like the Rondo during training for players to get more touches with the ball and as a result, develop their ability on the ball. 
Cruyff is undoubtedly a legendary manager, one of the few to be truly elite as both a player and a manager and influence the entire sphere of football in both regions. But is there anything else about his tactics not mentioned in the video? Or any thoughts on Cruyff in general? Drop them down in the comments below. We have plenty more Cruyff for you, with a video touching on his Ajax influence as well as his playing career linked at the end of this video. There are also videos on his disciple Pep Guardiola linked at the end as well. But that's all for today and remember, keep it simple. Hey, all right, so I think uh, that is the way that we will taper this conversation off. Um, I am a big proponent in the fact that uh, possession-based football is the most important and probably the best way that you can play. Um, simultaneously, when you lose possession, you work your ass off to get it back. Point blank, simple, right? So um, for those that, you know, maybe are listening or probably wondering why um, I, I at least think the way I think in regards to the beautiful game is because I was around enough coaches, uh, some of which that were um, trained or coached under Cruyff and the impact that they had on me was instilled in me based on you know, their coaching um, acumen and the fact that they played or at least wanted to play the style of total football. So I had to do my due diligence. Um, I went back and learned a lot about Cruyff. I was lucky enough to go overseas um, and tour the IX stadium, tour PSV, tour a couple of other stadiums, um, but uh, get a chance to talk to different coaches um, that had had their own experiences in and around the IX system, um, but more importantly, around Johan Cruyff. Uh, so that's where all of this comes from, and that is my philosophy in regards to the beautiful game. I appreciate all of you for listening, watching, wherever you're taking this in. If it's on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, wherever the case may be, thank you so much. This is the show, uh, the Shogun Soccer Sit Down. I'm Ahan the Shogun. Um, if I seem like I'm flighty, it's just because anytime that I get a chance to think about the beautiful game, you know, my head starts flooding with like all these ideas, uh, different ways in which I want to coach, teach, play, all of these things. Uh, I, I only believe in playing uh, beautiful soccer. You can play tough. You can play all of these things, uh, but you can still play good, right? The, the best way for you to play good soccer is to do it where you have possession. You don't waste possession. And uh, more importantly, uh, quote by Johan Cruyff, no team can score on you if you have possession of the ball, right? And the greatest quote that Cruyff um, had ever said is, playing soccer is simple. Is that right? Is that right? Did we get it right? Uh, maybe we did. Uh, playing football is very simple. That is correct. All right. So this is what my favorite quote from Johan Cruyff. Um, and I will repeat this a thousand times over. I, I always seem to kind of fumble over words when I say it. Um, but this is the easiest way that I can break it down. Playing football is simple. Playing simple football is the hardest thing that one can do. So what does that mean? It's pretty simple if you think about the idea and the tactic of 
when you don't have possession of the ball, you are a defender. You make the field as small as possible. When you do have possession of the ball, you are an attacker. You make the field as large as possible. So it's simple concept, but to play simple soccer is very, very difficult. Now that all of us have had this time to take a, a moment and think in regards to what we're doing here um, or what we should be doing, this shall conclude the Shogun Soccer sit-down. Again, like I said, I am Ahan, the number one Shogun, uh, a.k.a. Pablo Baldini. I'll headbutt you into the into the Stratford Inn. Don't play with me. I'll knock you all up and down this field. I'm coming for shins, knees, everything. And I'm not getting a yellow. Hey. But I love y'all. I want to thank y'all. I appreciate you. Uh, follow me on Instagram, Ahun the Shogun. Uh, follow me on Twitter, the Aaron Hunter. Uh, follow me on Facebook, Ahun the Shogun. We all outside, you know what I'm saying? We gonna get out of here with a little Mashke Nada. Hey, this is Shogun Soccer Sit Down, episode two. We are learning about the legacy of Johan Koy and the greatest tactician who has ever lived. Probably the greatest soccer mind. This dude is like Einstein when it comes to the theory of football relativity. Dig what I'm saying? Love y'all. Appreciate y'all. Make sure you check us out on all DSPs. Uh, network um all of our podcasts are on the season make sure you check us out uh make sure you give them a listen as well there's all types of things that you will be able to find we're going to be dropping more content all throughout this year thank y'all for rocking with us and uh i want to say shout out and happy birthday to my homeboy omar Oh, happy birthday, my brother. Love you. Hope you all have a great evening. Whenever it is, whenever you're listening. Thank you so much. I love y'all. Appreciate y'all. This is something I'm so passionate about. I'm happy that you are here with me. And we out. You know,